1: Elswick show and I am filling in for Dave Elswick. of course this is Robert Steinbuck uh, I am a law professor here in Little Rock all my views are my views alone and not necessarily of my employer folks it is early in the morning on Thursday and we've got a packed show uh, Hannah Webb Howard will be joining us, Chris Corbett will be joining us, Congressman French Hill will be joining us, and State Senator Dan Sullivan will be joining us. But prior there to, I wanted to talk to you about an issue that I believe is important, uh, and I think one that has been neglected for some time, and that is what we... Expect of prosecutors, state and federal, local and federal, and when that goal is not always met. So, first, let me say that I have a lot of friends who are or were prosecutors. Uh, I have also many friends who are or were defense attorneys, both public and, and private, meaning they worked for the government or they worked. In private, uh, But I've turned out, not by choice one way or the other, had more friends and have more friends, rather, who are prosecutors or were prosecutors. And I say that to simply suggest the truth, which is I support prosecutors. I think, of course, the same way that I support police. I think having good prosecutors is essential to a safe society. And I think for the overwhelming part, they do a good job and an ethical job. But I have said literally for decades, it's kind of scary to think that I can be saying anything for decades, but I have been saying for decades that from time to time we see a problem, what I call prosecutoritis. And that is when prosecutors view their goal as winning a case at all costs. In contrast to what you might say, Rom, in contrast to separately evaluating the appropriateness of the case and deciding whether to go forward with the case. Meaning, I believe, and the ethical rules support this idea, that each and every prosecutor. Should evaluate his and her case on an ongoing basis to determine whether the defendant, the person being charged, is guilty of those crimes. And if it ends.
2: Folks, it looks like that Robert Steinbach uh, clicked off uh, of the call. So give me just a moment. He should be calling back um, in just a little bit. But let me uh, let's go to uh, a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back on the Dave Ellswick show 101.1 FM the answer.
1: This is the Dave Ellswick show and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave. Sorry folks about that abrupt commercial break that we had. We had some technical difficulties, and Heidi was quick on her feet to throw to commercial. But we're back, and we're going to be back until our next commercial break. Hopefully, that will be in about 15 minutes, meaning that there won't be any more technical problems. I was talking before the break about what I think are the ethical obligations of prosecutors, and that is to make sure that the cases they're pursuing are meritorious, meaning they individually, on an ongoing basis, should be making that choice. Why do I raise this issue? Well, I will foretell the end of the story, so to speak, and that is regarding the General Flynn situation. So, if you read the New York Times, what's the most common refrain that you hear about General Flynn? Well, he pled guilty. You say he's guilty, pled guilty. He's got to be guilty because he pled guilty. There's no other explanation for why a man would plead guilty than that he's guilty, says the New York Times about General Flynn. And therefore, in the New York Times rolling leftist narrative, they say, therefore, the pardon by Trump, the uh, the. Exercise of appropriate oversight by the Department of Justice in seeking to dismiss the charges after General Flynn was literally set up by the top management of the FBI. When people who interviewed Flynn from the FBI agents said, "Mm, We don't think he's lying. He might have forgotten something, but we don't think he's lying. And, of course, on the charge of lying to the FBI, you've got to be, well, what's the word again? Oh, yeah, lying. Meaning a mistake is not a lie, folks. A mistake is a mistake, and a lie is intentionally falsifying the truth. And so that was the big charge against Flynn. Where he lied to the FBI. Not he, told, uh, he said a statement that turned out to be incorrect. He lied to the FBI, and the prosecutors ran with this, ran with this after the literally the top dog, our good friend, I put in air quotes, no doubt, uh, Comey, sent in investigators, FBI agents, to go talk to Flynn in violation of DOJ policy. And he said, well, I thought I could trick him. I thought I could trick the administration because it was so early in the administration that I didn't go through the White House Counsel's Office to set up the appointment like I'm supposed to. So remember, Comey's ongoing narrative is, rules don't apply to me. You see, I'm the head of the FBI, so the rules don't apply to me. So the rules regarding how you're supposed to appropriately interview folks within the Department of Justice uh, um, excuse me, within the White House by the Department of Justice, those rules don't apply to me. Oh, the rules on, quote, leaking, end quote, information to the media. uh, uh, Comey said, oh, well, those rules don't apply to me because I'm the head of the FBI. The, The number two guy, McCabe, made the same argument. The problem is that the DOJ decided, oh, well, those rules don't apply to you. Those lack of rules don't apply to you. You see, in make-believe world, in Alice in Wonderland world, it's hard to know when the mirror is curved and altering reality and when it ain't. That's the problem when you have these runaway bureaucrats who decide, oh, that rule applies to me and that rule doesn't apply to me. So it's literally the projection that, well, you Trump, he's violating norms, norms. Norms means what everybody else does because they want to. Those aren't rules. Those aren't laws. But when they talk about themselves and they refer to actual rules, oh, but those rules don't apply to me. So going back to General Flynn, the New York Times constantly invokes the fact that General Flynn indeed did plead guilty initially until he withdrew that plea uh, to Lying to the FBI. By the way, you're allowed to withdraw a plea. So if you withdraw a plea, it's a complicated process, meaning it just doesn't happen overnight. But if you withdraw a plea and then you initially pled guilty, does that mean that the withdrawal is not valid? Why is it that the New York Times constantly says, well, he pled guilty? Yes. Why don't you put in the same sentence and he withdrew that plea? And so I want to read to you from a New York Times article back in 2011. 2011. And, it, and, it, and again, I will foretell the future of the article already. And, and the future of the article is, it says, while prosecutors have so much power that sometimes people plead guilty when they ain't. Wait, what? Wait, are we discovering a new reality here? Prosecutors have so much power that sometimes people plead guilty when they're not? No, we've always known that, folks. And the left, by the way, when they pointed that out a decade ago, they were correct. Now, how do you modify that becomes a very interesting question. And I've always said that we need to be cautious about prosecutoritis, as I called it before the break. Because prosecutors have a lot of power. And if you have some who abuse that power, there's very little check in the system. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Do I think overall prosecutors are doing an excellent job? Yeah, I do, actually. I do. But... Much like we have a system of law that is designed to protect defendants, criminal defendants, who uh, um, are charged with crimes because we're worried that there may be one person out there, or a handful, let's say, who are innocent. We have to worry about the one or handful of prosecutors who are abusing their authority. And so that's the point here. It's uh, uh, Let me read you a little Uh, From this New York Times article, because this was the New York Times article a decade, uh, New York Times view a decade ago before they decided to get on the leftist bandwagon uh, of not being concerned about abuse of governmental power. Why? Because the governmental power that was being abused was in favor of their political outcomes. It was anti-Trump. So you see, to the New York Times, abuse of government power that harms Trump. Well, that's not an abuse, you see, because orange man Trump is bad, says the New York Times. So anything that goes after bad orange man is good. Right. Even if it's an abuse of power. Right. No, no, no. Let's read a little from the New York Times article from almost a year, uh, excuse me, almost a decade ago. They're quoting uh, a a former prosecutor. We now have an incredible concentration of power in the hands of prosecutors. Uh, He goes on to say, quoting from the article, that so much influence now resides with prosecutors that, quote, in the wrong hands, the criminal justice system can be held hostage. Really? Really? Has that not been what we have been saying about uh, Comey all this time that he abused his his authority. Remember, folks, there's nothing new about FBI directors abusing their authority. Why? Because that's what Hoover did. Remember, Hoover was a director of the FBI under like six presidents or eight. I'm making up the number, meaning I don't remember exactly what it was, but a huge number. Why? Because he would literally go into the next president with a folder and say, listen, Mr. New President, I wanted to let you know that we have a file on you, not because we collect a file on you. We would never do that. But because we know that this information is out there, we're keeping it protected. You're saying we're keeping it quiet, you see. So we're working for you, Mr. President. Hoover would do that every time. That criminal, by the way, his name is still on the FBI building. That name needs to be removed from the FBI building. Hoover was a criminal, a criminal. And his name remains on the FBI building. And what did Comey do when he met with President Trump Trump, the first time? He went in. And he literally said, well, you see, and he cleared people from the room. He said, Mr. President, we have this story out there about uh, uh, some sex show in a hotel room with you, uh, all made up, as it turns out. There's no evidence to support this. It's all from this wholly discredited Um, what they call dossier, which is a fancy French word. I'm not looking for fancy French words, by the way. I like the English. I like the common tongue. Uh, This fancy French word for folder. That's what it means, folder. In any event, from this folder put together by a hit man working for the Democrats, working for Hillary. And all of a sudden, it was gospel. Why? Because that's what the FBI wanted. They wanted dirt on Trump. Oh, we see. We're go- and we're going to keep it quiet. Hmm, sound familiar? Sound familiar? Yeah, because it's exactly the hit job that Hoover used to do to presidents. And how do I know this? Because I used to work for the guy who used to be the head of the Office of Professional Responsibility in the Department of Justice that oversaw wrongdoing by, amongst others, the FBI. And he's the one that told me about this. Uh, Mind you, this is no secret. Many people know this story. But that's what the former head of the Office of Professional Responsibility for the Department of Justice told me. And fast forward, who's doing the same kind of misbehavior? Exactly. Walking in with made-up nonsense nonsense. About the president, to say, oh, you see, Mr. President, we're doing you a favor. You can see him with his fingertip, uh, uh, fingertips uh, banging against each other uh, like a scene from The Simpsons. So let's constantly be wary of, I'm going to read back from the article in a moment if I have any more time before the break. Um, I think I do. I think I have about five minutes, folks, just for you to keep track. <clears throat> Excuse me. That let's be constantly wary of abuse of authority by government. Because here's the thing. You walk into the local Burger King or McDonald's. You go down to the local Walmart. What happens if a manager there abuses, abuses his authority? Well, you walk out. That's what happens. You leave. But if a government bureaucrat abuses his authority, particularly one in law enforcement, and that's what prosecutors are, they are law enforcement then what happens? People lose their rights. That's what happens. Even if you win, you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars going up against the man, so to speak. Absolutely. I know a a judge who says to me often when we discuss the topic, he said, the problem with the criminal justice system is that it's not wrongfully convicted. He said, it may happen. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is those wrongfully accused who get off, but they've gotten their sleeve caught up in the system, so to speak, and that shirt gets torn off their back. So, and he's just trying to make a point, meaning, which is worse, someone wrongfully convicted or the the greater number of people who've gotten their shirts torn off the back, who knows, he, he's not making a claim uh, fully about one or the other, but he's trying to highlight the fact that, whether or not you're convicted is not the only problem. Even if you're not convicted, but you got caught up in a system inappropriately, uh, well, that, it, it will have ripped your life apart. And that's what happened to Flint. So we have this letter that goes on, excuse me, this article, the New York Times. It says cases like such and such explain that this defendant, Guthrie, was arrested. Accused of beating his girlfriend and threatening her with a knife, the prosecutor offered him a deal for two years in prison plus probation. Guthrie rejected the offer and, a, and a, a later offer of five years because he believed that he was not guilty, his lawyer said. But the prosecutor's response was severe. He filed a more serious charge that would mean life imprisonment if Mr. Guthrie is convicted uh, Then a year later, because of a state law that increased punishment for people who had recently been in prison, like Mr. Guthrie doesn't sound like he's a great guy. Don't get me wrong. The sentence would be mandatory. So what he could have resolved for a two year term could keep him locked up for 50 years or more. Right. And so this is stiffer. The article goes on to say stiffer punishments were also put in place for specific crimes like peddling drugs, et cetera, et cetera. These tougher penalties, by many accounts, have have contributed to the nation's steep drop in crime over the past two decades, which is a good thing. They may have also. Swell the prison population to levels that lawmakers in some states say they can no longer afford, and a few have rolled back some laws. Okay, well, whether that's good or bad, uh, we can debate at a separate point. <clears throat> Here is the point that I want to bring out: in the courtroom, I'm reading from the article, and during plea negotiations, the impact of these stricter laws is exerted through what academics call the trial penalty. The fee. Fa- The phrase refers to the fact that the sentences for people who go to trial have grown harsher relative to the sentences for those who agree to a plea. Legislators, the article goes on, want to make it easy for prosecutors to get the convictions without having to go to trial, says some uh, professor. And prosecutors who are starved for resources want to use that leverage. Remember that key phrase, leverage. And now everyone acts with the assumption that the case should end with a plea.
2: All right, Robert. Let's, let's yep. continue this thought into the next segment. Robert Steinbach is a UA Little Rock law professor over at the Bowen School of Law. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of UA Little Rock. He is filling in for Dave Ellswick on the Dave Ellswick Show. Let's get to your news.
1: This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave this Thursday morning. On the line we have with us Hannah Webb Howard, who we're going to get to in just a moment, and she will continue our conversation that I have started before the break on the power that prosecutors have and our apt concern when, on those rare occasions, it's abused. And I want to read a few more comments from this 10-year-old New York Times article about that, and this was from the time in which the New York Times was not spewing its lies about, well, you see, General Flynn pled guilty, so how could he be pardoned? How could the Attorney General say that they wanna drop the charges against him? Because you see, according to the New York Times, you see, if someone pleads guilty, they're guilty, no matter what, no matter what. But 10 years prior, Here's what the New York Times says. They quote one federal judge who says, how many times is a mandatory sentence used as a chip in order to coerce a plea? That's what the public doesn't see and where the statistics become meaningless. He's talking about the statistics of guilty pleas uh, happening. Uh, Later in the article, it says, no matter how strongly defendants believe they are innocent, uh, and it's quoting, uh, let's see, well, I think it's quoting the same judge. Uh, uh, he said they could be taking dangerous risks, the defendants, that is, uh, by, for example, turning down a one-year plea bargain when the prosecutor threatens additional charges that carry a mandatory sentence ten times as long. The, the article goes on. The transfer of power to prosecutors from judges has been so profound that an important ritual, trial ritual, has become in some measure a lie Somebody else says the instructions judges read during the jury determination determines guilt or innocence and the judge a proper sentence. The latter part is no longer true when mandatory minimum minimums and in many cases sentencing guidelines apply. But jurors don't know that. So uh, finally, I'll, I'll use you one more quote. Uh, and it says, Uh, A former Utah prosecutor did not dispute that sentencing law changes has made trial riskier for defendants and helped drive down the percentage of cases taken to a verdict. He also acknowledged that the plea bargain process, quote, clearly is coercive, end quote, when defendants face harsher or more dangerous, excuse me, or more numerous charges for rejecting deals. Now, I'm not here to make such blanket claims. But what I will say is this is the point that the New York Times made 10 years ago, that sometimes people will take plea deals because the alternative is so harsh. They, uh, they do a rational evaluation of what's the more Uh, risky outcome, even though they don't think that they're guilty. To be clear, even if they're not guilty, meaning a prosecutor says you may go to jail for life or, as they did in Flynn's case, we're going to prosecute your son. He said, well, my son didn't do anything wrong. We don't care. We're going to prosecute your son or you take a plea. How many parents will take a plea for their children when they believe their children didn't commit a crime or when their children didn't commit a crime just to keep their children out of harm's way? And now the New York Times are, well, he he pled guilty. Yeah, he did plead guilty. Does that mean he's guilty? Not necessarily. That's all I'm trying to say. Not necessarily. And the leftist New York Times used to believe in the notion of keeping checks on those few runaway prosecutors, but not anymore. Hannah Webb Howard, how are you this morning? I'm great. How are you? Tell me, do you get any of this uh, um, learning, shall we say? In law school, what is the attitude of those that are teaching you about the role of prosecutors, if any?
3: So, and you you probably understand, and other people in law school probably understand, that I don't think the public is necessarily aware. Because criminal law prosecutors, public defenders are... A lot of times in the public eye, those are the stories that make news headlines and those are the stories that, you know, spread across the nation and we get mad or happy or sad about. But, you know, it's condensed to two classes out of, you know, however many upteen I take here in law school. So the conversation about criminal law is incredibly limited in law school. And, of course, you can choose to go down that elective hole, that's not the law that I'm going to choose to do. But otherwise, law school mandatory classes and such are very civil law heavy. So the debate in just your everyday general classes at law school isn't typically the divide between prosecutors and public defenders, et cetera. Um, Conversations that I have had have been, um, or maybe not that I have had, but I have observed or heard. Um have been to limit the police force, and whether that is from you know a leftist, oh, the police are bad' or more of a conservative oh let's limit the government, I honestly couldn't tell, which I think is an interesting distinction
1: mhm that's very interesting well let's let's relate that to another topic uh, and that is as the Dave's audience uh, likely recalls you are the founding president of the Second Amendment Society uh, at that uh, situated at the Bowen School of Law. Uh, it doesn't mean they endorse the views of any of its members, or to the extent a, uh, an organization can have a collective view, a questionable premise. Uh, how receptive have you found a the student body? to notions of Second Amendment rights, and be the faculty, other than me, of course, uh, to Second Amendment rights and gun issues.
3: Sure. So what's interesting when at law school, of course, you know, which we say tends to lean liberal, and it does, but maybe not as heavy as other law schools. So in Arkansas, maybe this is Arkansas-specific, who knows, but- at Bowen, the divide isn't as harsh as in some places. So I get a little more of a receptive vibe for whatever reason that is. Because when, when you put yourself out there to be the head of something like the Second Amendment Society that, of course, advocates for gun rights, that is just, you know, a total right-wing idea. It's extremist, and it's a very kind of in-your-face issue amongst the legal community especially you know as young academics that are zealous to argue but and so I say that to say a lot of times I think the initial impression of maybe my views or of the club in general is that oh we're just crazy gun-toting southerners and of course isn't the truth and you know we've talked about it before I like to call myself just the average gun owner meaning I want the freedom to be able to carry my weapon with me wherever I go to protect myself. You know, I'm a young, scrawny girl, you know, walking around the streets by myself all day. And I want the ability to protect myself when I'm out and then when I'm at my home. So when I founded the club, I was very, very particular about the fact that I wanted it to be a genuine place to have a meaningful conversation because we've lost that these days. Everything's one extreme or the other, and you can't even talk about it because things are so polarized. And that is not what I wanted with the Second Amendment Society, and I truly think that's what we have. So the whole point of the society, and I made this very clear from the beginning, was we want to have honest, educational conversations, and I'm not going to attack you for your views if You don't attack me for mine. And I was blown away with the student body receptiveness of it. Now, of course, if people were bashing me behind closed doors, I I assumed they wouldn't offer that up to my face, but it is law school, so there's a good chance they would offer up to my face. I never had conversations like that with students by any means. In fact, there were several students that approached me or even came to some of our events that I would have... Presumed maybe falsely, that they were incredibly liberal or at least lean left. And they were interested just in learning about maybe weapons or weapons safety or what exactly the conversation is. Because I think a lot of times we fight with each other about sec- the second amendment or gun rights or gun laws, but we don't actually have that baseline knowledge of why we're even fighting about it. We just know we're fighting. And so it was a really the students were incredibly receptive and i've even had professors of course you were receptive but i've even had professors that have since offered to say hey i don't agree with the second amendment at all but i would love to come have a conversation with your group to talk about you know xyz legal issue about it that's incredible to me that people offer themselves to come have that genuine conversation
1: I've had what, what about, uh, what about, uh, uh, I recall you had some interaction with some professors r- coming to our first event, which was to go to the Mayflower shooting range. Uh, what what reaction did you get in that context?
3: And so what's interesting is the only, so, you know, I had the stereotype response that I thought I was going to get in my mind, which was going to be, you know, cheeky, cheeky opposition to our event. And I only got that from professors, which is absolutely fine. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that they should hold back their conversations with me just because I'm a student. By any means, I want them to be open and honest. But it was it limited. It was a very limited response. But the only time I got that sort of cheeky opposition was, in fact, from the professor, which is interesting.
1: And what was that response?
3: That response, <laughs> that response was, I'm not coming because I never intend on actually shooting people or something to that effect.
1: Oh, were were, were I, we I, shooting I, people at the event?
3: You know, the Mayflower Range is actually so adamant about not shooting people. You're not even allowed to shoot. Oh, you're not allowed KHA to shoot people to at Mayflower. They don't have a so separate section not. for shooting
1: people at Mayflower.
3: <laughs> Surprisingly not.
1: Surprisingly oh, not. Uh, because I know they've got the uh, the the long gun section, then they got the handgun section. I thought way past down on the left, past the parking lot, was the shooting at people section. Did they they haven't built that one out yet? I guess it's a design defect. You know, their architecture shoot up on there. Okay. All, All right. See. There you let's,
2: go. Uh, uh, let's continue this conversation into the next segment. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave is taking some time off for the new year. Uh, he is joined by Hannah Webb Jones. Hannah Webb Howard, Howard, I should say. Yes, thank you. Um, we'll be right back on the Dave Elswick show. 101.1 FM. The answer.
1: This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Samak. Here on Wednesday morning, on the line with us is Hannah Webb Howard. We're talking about Second Amendment rights, uh, and we're going to continue till the bottom of the hour. Let's uh, say thank you. We're ready to Hannah because Heidi will. Uh, break in when is necessary, and we won't have an opportunity to thank you, Hannah, for joining us again this morning. Hannah, we're talking about Second Amendment rights, and you told me during the break that there's a very interesting story, a success story that uh, we should share with Dave's audience. So why did not you tell us about that?
3: Sure. So this, this is my favorite story that's come out of the Second Amendment Society so far. Um, at our first event, we had um, a guy come out of sheer curiosity, he wanted to come see, you know, what the Second Amendment Society was about, but it also never shot a gun in his life. And so he was able to learn how to do that properly and, you know, learn the mechanics of everything and safety and, you know, etiquette at the gun range and gun safety in general. And the last conversation I had with him, which was several months after that, was that he's gone back to the range a couple times and he was even considering getting his concealed license. And so that full circle, it it was like I was a proud mama moment. Like that was everything that I wanted to happen. And it did. Like, you know, we opened the door to genuine conversation. We were receptive. We welcomed all views and everything came to fruition like we hoped it would.
1: It's a wonderful story, and we can also share with you that when we invited uh, students and faculty, no other faculty uh, came, uh, but a number of students came, and they spanned the spectrum, so to speak. We had men and women. We had minorities. We had uh, non-minorities. We had uh, people who were a little bit older, people who were a little bit younger from the student body. We have people with military experience, people who have never held a gun, and, of course, it highlights the fact that so much of what goes on related to firearms is stereotyping. Oh, so that's white male grievance, blah, 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 all that kind of really bad language uh, that seeks to stereotype those who want to defend themselves. Uh, Let me tell you, uh, I am acutely aware of the importance of carrying, uh, of having rights to firearms uh, from my family's history. And we've talked about this on Dave's show before, and I don't want to delve too deeply into it, but my family... very little of my family survived the Holocaust. And so being able to defend yourself uh, is an important right that I know of directly from my family's history. And the, when you hear the left, who have generally been skeptical of, over, uh, by, uh, of abuse by government, uh, an abuse by authority, an abuse by those in one form of power or another uh, decry that concern when it comes to gun rights. It highlights the hypocrisy of the left, much like we highlighted the hypocrisy of the left when when you came on the line about their Uh, concern about runaway prosecutors until they ain't so concerned because the people being prosecuted are their political enemies. So the left shows no bounds when it comes to hypocrisy. And what I applaud you having done with the Second Amendment Society, uh, housed at the Bowen School of Law, is your outreach to students, to faculty, Uh, and we had such a wonderful reception by students, maybe in the future we can get some uh, greater reception by faculty. We'll see. Who knows? They're, of course, not obliged, but I'd like to see a little more open-mindedness, needless to say, when it comes to faculty views on guns. But obviously, in the end, people are free to make their choices, and we are not seeking to compel anybody to do anything. That was one of the humorous ideas that I heard when the law was passed about campus carry, the ability to carry on university campuses. People said, well, you can't force a professor to carry a gun. Force? Who said anything about forcing? It's about having the right to do so, not about being mandated. We're not mandating anything. So that was a great law passed by Charlie pushed by and written by Charlie Collins. He's no longer in the legislature, but he was a great legislator, no doubt. So what are your grand plans in the very little time that we have left in the future for the second amendment society, Hannah?
3: So hopefully COVID won't have as much of a chokehold on everybody this next semester. I presume everything will continue to be virtual. Who knows? We'll see. Um, So the plan is if we are virtual to try to generate some interest and maybe some virtual events, although I don't know how successful that they have been for student organizations this semester. We might try, we might not. But we just want to continue to kind of build on that baseline that we've set, meaning we want all sides to come to the discussion. So, you know, I have had a professor who feels differently than us reach out to me and um, offered to do an entire seminar on um, why he believes the Heller case was right. And for people who aren't familiar with it, the Heller case is kind of a landmark decision um, in favor of gun rights from the Supreme court. And, but, and so he wants to come speak to us about how he thinks Heller is right, but that the second amendment should be abolished. Now that's an interesting conversation, but, I'm excited that he's willing to come talk to us about it. And, of course, it will be cordial. I have no doubt about that. And it stimulates incredibly interesting conversation. Um, And we've talked about this several times. We want to have Ed Monk come on and do his active shooter presentation, which he has spent um, an unknowable amount of time studying and researching. And um, his his limited pieces that I've heard of it, It's just incredible um, the kind of information that he has to give to everybody. And so those are our immediate plans. Long-term plans is for this not to be a one-year-and-done ordeal, um, that it keeps growing, and the conversation keeps being cordial. So I think think that kind of overarching idea is important in the legal community, important in law school, and important in the country, is everything doesn't have to be so polarized. And so maybe there will be some more groups pop up about some – super polarized issues that we can have non-polarized conversations about. And so that's where we're at, and that's what we hope our future looks like.
1: Well, it sounds like a wonderful plan. Uh, I have been talking as well, as you know, with Ed Monk. He's a firearms expert here in Arkansas, and really does, in particular, a wonderful job on active shooter training. And One of the facts that I learned from his presentations is, the. of course, we can never expect cops to be on the scene everywhere, right? We're a huge country, and you can't have the cops there immediately. And in those situations where you had someone who had a gun, a defensive weapon uh, during an active shooting, the loss of life from the active shooter is remarkably less than the contrary. Uh, And so that's an important note. Hannah,
2: thank you so much for joining us today. We will be right back with Robert Steinbach as guest host on The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer.
1: the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave Ellswick. On the line with us is Congressman French Hill. Congressman, sorry to cut you off there during the break. The system does that. Uh, Welcome to the show. How have you been during these difficult times?
0: Well, I've been well. I'm blessed. Our family's uh, blessed. We're all well, from my dad to my kids, and been traveling back and just pleased uh, that we got COVID-19 relief for the families here at the end of the year, something we should have done back in August.
1: Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about that. And, and uh, you aptly point out that it didn't happen in August. Ooh, and of course, I know the answer, and I suspect most of Dave's uh, audience knows as well, but it's worth highlighting. Why couldn't this be, have been done in August?
0: Well, some of the programs expired in August, and so particularly the Paycheck Protection Program, which was a grant program for small businesses to keep people employed. That's the whole purpose of it, was to keep people connected mm-hmm. to their job on payroll and off unemployment. It expired August 8th, so we tried 40 times to reauthorize that program, which had $138 billion in it unapplied for. So it was not we weren't <laughs> even going to appropriate new funds. We were just going to simply reopen. The program for applications and our House Speaker Nancy Pelosi blocked that 40 times as a motion on the House floor uh, all the way up until after the election. And then she told a Washington reporter last week, look, you know, she didn't do anything about covid relief before the election because she didn't want to give Trump the victory for it. So. I'm pretty cynical about it, Uh, but the point is that Stephen Mnuchin, Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary, worked with the House, worked with the Senate, and got a good compromise bill passed that helps extend the Paycheck Protection Program for our restaurants, our hotels, that are still suffering in the pandemic. Money for schools, money for health care and vaccine uh, distribution, Uh, an extension of unemployment benefits that were going to expire Monday, December 28th. Those were extended for 13 weeks. And because the president wanted uh, direct cash payments, uh, that was included in the bill as well. It's not as high as he wanted, uh, but it is an amount that could get 60 votes in the Senate.
1: Right. And, and now the president has still said he'd like a higher amount. And I understand that uh, you are behind that idea. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this is an open question. Do you support the idea for increasing that amount?
0: I did not, because uh, okay, I believe I there, are better, there are better ways to help the country than give $2,000 to people who make $150,000 a year and are employed. I mean, we need to be helping the people who are suffering either from a health point of view or because they can't find work and they don't have adequate uh, income in this disease because they're not working. And that's why the unemployment benefits combined with, uh, importantly, combined with the Paycheck Protection Program and combined with rental assistance. This bill has some rental assistance which will help both landlords coping with eviction, moratoriums for public health purposes, as well as those tenants who were struggling to pay rent. So this was a full package, uh, but I did not support the extra $2,000. I don't think it was the right economic policy, and I don't think it's the right uh, support policy. I think what was uh, the package put together, rental assistance plus unemployment assistance plus the Paycheck Protection Program, which will allow millions of people to go back to a job. We've got to get the economy well, it's open. Is tri- how we're going to help people.
1: Indeed. And it strikes me that you, with a background as a banker, uh, aptly are considering focusing the money where it's needed. And the left seems largely to uh, adopt this notion that money doesn't belong to individuals. It's, it's to be taken by the government and then redistributed how the government sees fit. I see some of that notion reflected in the dichotomy where people like Chuck Schumer, who, as you know, is wealthy, is sitting there saying, well, we need to take this money from all Americans and." it here and there and everywhere else, regardless of need. Uh, am I oversimplifying the the dichotomy between conservative values and the left?
0: No, I mean that's you've got it. You know, in in May, uh, in in March and April, when we passed the CARES Act, we were in the middle of the a pandemic we didn't understand. We didn't under, fully understand the consequences of it, and we told every American, stay home, don't go to work. And 20 million people lost their jobs in a month, which is why we created the Pandemic Unemployment Program and we did the initial stimulus checks. Now we know a lot more about this disease. Now we have a vaccine that's rolling out across the country. Now we know people can cope uh, with the disease by following the CDC standards. We know essential workers are going to work every day, putting it all on the line to help our country. So we need to get the economy back open, and that's why I think these other ways to take our hard-earned taxpayer money and spend it to beat the virus and get the economy open uh, could just be done better. That extra $2,000 is another almost $500 billion, just to put a number on it. It's another $500 billion on top of the $900 billion we just approved.
1: Well, you know, uh, Congressman, uh, five hundred billion here and five hundred billion there—it starts to add up after a while, don't you think?
0: Yeah, well, I don't, and I've—I've I've been very clear. Uh, that's your best Everett Dirksen impression, exactly. Uh, you
1: know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> the um, this is—we have to get the resources with our state governments and our federal government in the private sector to beat this virus. All of us have a personal responsibility of that and get our economy back open. And so I thought the the package that President Trump negotiated and approved um, and he ultimately signed, which I'm pleased he did, uh, is a good step right now.
1: Indeed. Well, let's let's expand out a little bit. You you have done a lot of things. You've worked on a lot of things this past year. It's the end of the year. We, we like to do some retrospective uh, during this time, typically, and looking back on what went well and what didn't go well. And this has been a crazy year for sure. So tell us. I mean, I think it's really important for our Kansans to know what their representatives have done, are doing, and will do. We we hear a lot during campaign seasons about. Well, you know, this is what I'm going to do, and that's a good thing. It's important to inform the public. But I'm not sure we hear on a regular basis as much, albeit I think your weekly appearances with Dave uh, is, uh, does this. Uh, that is, give us a little retrospective on what you were involved in over the past year.
0: Well, the year was dominated, certainly by the congressional delegation working in Congress to bring COVID relief to Arkansans. And and in the CARES Act, over $8 billion came to Arkansas for hospitals, our education institutions, the Paycheck Protection Program, unemployment benefits to our families hurting. So that, was, that dominated the year. But in our office, we never stopped uh, working on behalf of the people of central Arkansas. We opened some 800 cases. We helped people get uh, passports. We helped uh, people get their economic stimulus payment from the IRS. We helped them finally get their tax refund from the IRS. That We had many, many problems with government this year because government shut down, too. And so the bureaucracy wasn't issuing tax refunds, wasn't issuing passports. That took a lot of our team's effort here. Our vet team helped hundreds of vets. We got over $3 million and earned benefits for veterans this year back in their pockets in this very, very challenging uh, year. Legislatively, I was, I was pleased that despite uh, the tough environment in Washington, I was able to get several of my uh, bills to combat terrorism and terror finance passed. One passed... Uh, that allows uh, banks to cooperate with law enforcement on accounts that are are suspect. That was an important bill that got uh, signed into law by President Trump. My bill countering China and China's predatory lending around the world, punishing third world countries, also is uh, uh, ultimately going to be signed into law. It's contained in the defense uh, package. We recognize Scipio Jones here in Little Rock, the famous Arkansas lawyer early in the 20th century that was so instrumental uh, in the aftermath of the terrible Elaine massacre and and getting freedom, and uh, for the 12 wrongly accused defendants there who set a Supreme Court precedent that helped uh, pioneer the rest of the civil rights cases before the U.S. uh, Supreme Court. So it was a good legislative year, but I really, my hat's off to my staff for being on the job every day, seven days a week, working for the constituents here
1: congressman you highlight such an important point which is sometimes uh, constituent citizens don't recognize that a congressman's office is there to help them on certain individual problems help them navigate through the government bureaucracy which is overwhelming I've called your office as a constituent and have had overwhelming uh, nice attitude and and support and help Um, and I I suspect the person uh, when I initially called, at least, had no idea who I was, meaning it doesn't matter. I'm nobody special, uh, more so than anybody else. Everybody's special. Everybody's a constituent, and that's the feeling that I got when I called your office. So I uh, applaud your staff the same way you do for really doing a wonderful job of being available to the citizens, because in the end we're paying for it, so we are entitled to get those services uh, from the government And a lot of times it's very hard to get through to the government. And that's why you call your congressman's office and say, I need some help. I can't figure out what's going on.
0: Um, Well, we're there. We're there for folks and they can contact us at hill.house.gov. And we're at the ready to help them solve their problem with the IRS or Social Security or the Veterans Administration.
1: Well, that's it's wonderful having a hill up on the hill. I'm sorry I couldn't help myself with that one. Uh, um,
2: All right, you, y'all. You ha- let's uh, yep. let's take a break. Uh, take a we need break. to get to some uh, traffic and news. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick as Dave Ellswick is taking some uh, New Year's breaks right now. We are joined by U.S. Congressman French Hill. We will be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer.
1: This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Steinbach, filling in for Dave this Wednesday morning. On the line with us is Congressman French Hill. We have about seven minutes left with the congressman, and so we will thank him in advance for joining the show, because at the end of the segment, Heidi will cut us off. Congressman, I wanted to talk about (laughs) two more topics of uh, interest. Uh, One is something you said before the break, and something I am particularly interested in, and that is what we are doing relative to China in general. I do believe that China is a bad actor on the world stage. And so talk to us a bit about uh, those bills that you have proposed and the one bill that you have mentioned before the break that will shortly be law. And then we'll maybe spend a few minutes on the Georgia Senate race. What do you have to say about China?
0: Yeah, well, I serve as the senior Republican on the National Security uh, Committee for Financial Services. We do sanctions against other countries and other bad actors like Iran, Russia, China, North Korea. We also uh, do terror finance uh, interdiction. But we also oversee the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. These are the post-World War II organizations that do lending out around the world in the developed nations. This is where we have focused on China. We want China graduated from the World Bank. We don't think China is the largest uh, economy in the world that's developed so quickly over the last three decades that it should still be able to borrow money at the World Bank. We don't think that's appropriate. So... We had a bill included this year that would graduate China from the World Bank. Secondly, something I worked on personally and led was the fact that China is the world's largest creditor now. Now, think about that. Still borrowing as a developing country at the World Bank, but they are now officially the world's largest creditor, meaning more people owe money to China than any other location in the world. And they're doing that by junk bond-type financing around the world. Let's say uh, you read the news stories uh, last year broadly. Sri Lanka Airport, the island Sri Lanka off the coast mm-hmm. of India had a big airport. Well, China says, well, we'll finance that for you. Well, they took the airport as collateral. And when the when the Sri, Sri Lankans couldn't pay appropriately, they took over the airport. <clears throat> They're trying to do that in the port at Montevideo, Uruguay. They're trying to do that all over the world, creating strategic bottlenecks. Panama Canal, uh, off Jakarta, in the Indian Ocean, uh, where uh, the straits at the Red Sea. Uh, So China is going into these third world countries, lending money, taking their oil and gas, taking their land, taking their port facility as collateral, and then trying to foreclose on it. So our bill says... The IMF, the World Bank, cannot lend money to those countries without China being transparent exactly on the terms and conditions. Boring topic for uh 7 o'clock in the morning, but I'm telling I'm you, I'm not this sure is that's criti- right.
1: I think that's a, it's is a a critical national security risk. Let's boil is, it down as you yeah. have. That is, what China's doing is it goes to these really poor nations. By the way, all the time that China says, we're a really poor nation, and it goes to these really poor nations, lends them money in predatory lending capacity, like these payday loans here in the States, and they say, oh, everything's fine, but by the way, if you can't pay your hundred. percent interest rate or whatever it may be I use some hyperbole we're going to take over your port your airport you mean all these strategic locations across the world you think China really wants its money back or you think China is looking for all of these strategic uh, ports and airports etc across the world so that they can become even more powerful and even more dangerous relative to us and other free nations that's what it sounds like to me am I missing something there no, you've
0: got it. And so we're we're working that, and, and our listeners need to know we're working it financially, economically, but we're doing the same thing diplomatically. We're going to the European countries, the G7, big industrial countries, and we're saying China is a predator diplomatically, engineering-wise, technology theft-wise. We don't want you to use Huawei in your 5G networks in Europe. And we're now... President Trump's done a great job warning the world of of China changing its strategy back during the Obama administration to try to dominate militarily, trade and business, diplomatically and financially around the world. It's something that we've uh, just not paid enough attention to. And and frankly, uh, President Obama coddled it during his Obama Biden years in China, they actually praised China for some of the things it was doing in, in this in this way in the third world.
1: It's really remarkably dangerous how and I don't know what it is. There's something going on there. How the Democrats are so in bed with China, and of course I'm not talking about Eric Swalwell in this uh, context, but we'll put Literally. that aside for. Right, exactly. Uh, biblically as well. Uh, and so it's remarkable what China's doing. And let's just finally come full circle on this. The IMF is an international organization that lends money to poor countries, largely funded by the U.S. It's our taxpayer dollars going there. And they're lending money to China. They're le- China buys our bonds, and the IMF, funded by us, is lending money to China. How is that the case? That is bureaucracy, world bureaucracy at its worst. am I right about that?
0: Well, it was the World Bank, not the IMF, but oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you, you are you are right, and we have an excellent Donald Trump appointed an excellent leader to the World Bank. An American gets to lead the World Bank, uh, and it's David Malpass, a devoted long term conservative economist. And he's doing a great job on this transparency fight that I'm talking about and on uh, pushing China to be graduated from the bank. But it's, a, it's an act in diplomacy. We need the support of countries around the world to do that. And don't forget, China is an investor in the bank uh, themselves because of their, of their size.
1: Of course. And how is the vote one vote per country, or is it based on input of dollars?
0: It is based on input of dollars, and Mm. after World War II, when these were set up, uh, the voting rights at the World Bank and the IMF were structured in a way where America has a sort of uh, veto-proof vote slightly under certain things, and so we're still structured to uh, be a major leader in the decisions in the IMF and the World Bank, Uh, but that requires us working with the other G7 countries to achieve that.
2: All right, y'all, we are out of time. Thank you, Congressman, for joining us. We will be right back on The Dave Ellswick Show. Here is Rush Limbaugh.
1: This is The Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach, filling in for Dave this Wednesday morning about 7.35 in the morning. We've had a really packed morning already. We've had Hannah Webb Howard on the show. We had Congressman French Hill uh, on the show. And now... We have Senator Dan Sullivan from the Jonesboro area uh, calling in. Dan, how are you? Great,
4: Robert, and always uh, glad to be on. And We're getting ready to turn over a new year, uh, and I'm being be sworn in in just a few more days. So I'm really looking forward to that. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on today.
1: I've always said, Dan, to you and on Dave's show that I think the only person – Um, happier about your election outside of you. I think I am the, the person happiest about your election outside of your family. And I say that not because we're friends, which we are, but I say that because I know that your election alone, it is not alone, but alone will make a dramatic change in the makeup of the Arkansas Senate. You are a committed conservative to free speech, to gun rights, and to many other conservative values. And it just makes me feel so good because my goal is the goal that I would hope all conservatives have, and that is to continue to bring out uh, conservative values in this state. Some people have said to me, for example, in the past, Rob, you you do a lot of talking. I don't see you running for election. And I say, listen, whether I run for election or not is is not the issue. The issue is how do we accomplish conservative goals? It's about the outcomes. It's not about who does it, not about credit or lack of credit. And I know you feel the same way. And so I want to applaud you for that. And and before I even let you comment, as is often the case with my long-winded introductions, I want to raise a question with you, and that is, I heard this story about a fellow with a concealed carry license who brought his gun into, I don't know if it was a TGI Fridays or a Hand, something like that, what happen, which happens to be, unbeknownst to him and everyone else perhaps, on the property uh, of the university up there, and there was a much ado about that. Uh, so, what can you tell us about that? Sure, I
4: had a good friend of mine, Mark Bell, who uh, was meeting the, uh, ironically, the local police chief up here for lunch at Hula restaurant, and uh, which also happens to be on the campus of a, a large hotel here in Jonesboro, Embassy Suites. Uh, and Mark was there meeting some friends and stepped outside for a moment, and the uh, college campus police saw that he had a weapon uh, that was printing you know, so he had a concealed carry, but evidently a little bit of it was sticking out under his coat and he was uh, held I don't know what other words he used he wasn't officially arrested, but they detained him, uh, asked him to put his car back in his gun and said he was now a felon. Uh, he hadn't been arrested and committed a fe- or been arrested for a felony, but that it was a felony offense to have a weapon, on the hotel and restaurant property. And, of course, Mark, as anybody else would have said, what do you mean uh, campus property? You know, I'm on in the hotel property and at the restaurant. I didn't know this was campus property. Well, they the campus police uh, then detained him for a while, uh, took his concealed carry license, uh, sent it down to the state police with a report to review. Well, I'll skip through all of the um, the 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 time that went through but it took about a week maybe a little bit more uh finally the state police looking at the contract between the hotel and Hulahans and the university said that the university did not have jurisdiction on that leased property i don't know that that the state police can offer a legal opinion but they decided not to uh, prosecute this uh, they sent Mark back his license. Of course, Mark was just really concerned uh, that he was going to be a felon, lose his license to carry a gun, to go hunting, uh, and very concerned for about a week. So it was finally resolved. But, Robert, this shows the, the lack of consistency in our current law uh, with handguns on the concealed carry and the enhanced carry. You know, all of, just about all of our colleges in the state, have property off the college campus. I think some of them even own storefront property in communities. Some of them own land off campus. Uh, many people go hunting on the college land and don't even know it. But as the law stands now, if you were to go, as I would uh, read that, if you were to go hunting on the college property that's down you know, somewhere in rural Arkansas, you would be committing a felony. As a matter of fact, there are several roads that go through campuses. And if you're, the law says, within 100 feet of the the college campus, you can't have a gun. 1,000 feet, I'm sorry. So if you're driving down the road and driving through campus, you're now a felon. You haven't been arrested, you haven't been convicted, but you're committing a felony. So we really need to look at these uh, Second Amendment laws coming up in the upcoming session. And I know you've been involved in this and I look forward to working with you because they're not very uh, accurate uh, and not very uh, Second Amendment friendly.
1: Yeah, well, Dan, you're right on the money. We have such a labyrinth of confusing laws on gun rights, uh, including one law that correctly says you are entitled to carry a gun freely throughout the state but for certain prohibited locations right. uh, and so our laws remain this patchwork of overlapping and somewhat inconsistent statutes and what happens then
4: well we you know we put uh make felons out of innocent people uh they haven't been convicted and they haven't been arrested but it makes it very difficult, you know. We have, like, on the college campus here, we have uh, Northeast Arkansas is famous for its duck hunting. So we have a lot of duck hunters coming in to stay at the uh, at the hotel on campus.
1: Dan, to bring Dan, guns. let me in. Dan, yeah, let, let me interrupt you. I um, I inadvertently hung up, and so Heidi went to commercial, uh, and then I called back in. So we cut you off, and I cut you off, but we'll come back after commercial, and we'll continue, and I'll apologize to the audience. Do I need, for, uh, do I need to call back in? No, no, you Why don't need you? to call back in because I'm okay. the one that hung up. So I, I got lost from the, the communal line. Okay, that's all right. This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Wednesday morning. On the line with us is Senator Dan. Sullivan uh, we got cut off due to my mistake this time Uh, technology is always difficult for someone as primitive as me Uh, in any event Dan, we were talking before I had uh, rudely cut us all off and that was about this incident that took place up there at the local University in Jonesboro where an individual was legally carrying his gun but it turns out that the local hula hands or whatever it may be was technically on school property And a whole hullabaloo arose out of that fact. Luckily, in the end, this person uh, was not charged and got his license back, which was physically taken away from him. But that's quite an ordeal to go through. And it highlights to me, Dan... The intricacy and the difficulty of our laws regarding gun rights in the state of Arkansas, they need to be simplified, they need to be cleaned up, and it also highlights to me the inherent distaste for gun laws from the bureaucrats at our universities. Look, it's overwhelmingly the case that those that work at universities are liberal. And frankly, leftist is a more accurate term. They are anti-gun. When Charlie Collins passed the first time, campus carry it had an exception. Said, well, if a university wants to opt out, it can opt out. Well, they all opted out. They all opted out because they're overwhelmingly a bunch of leftists. That's not a law then. So Charlie said, well, obviously this isn't working. We'll pass a law that we, we leave this decision where it belongs to the representatives of the citizens of Arkansas because this is public property, not university p- property. And then the law as it exists today was enacted. Thank goodness. Uh, But we still have this entrenched leftist ideology in universities. By the way, that's why I think it's so important to protect the tenure of conservatives, because if conservatives didn't have tenure protection, then they would be out on their behinds. I guarantee it. Uh, But we need to be concerned about this complicated system of laws that we have regarding gun rights. And what do you see that we can do in this next legislative session to help resolve that ongoing problem.
4: Well, you know, um, Robert, there are several uh, pieces of legislation that we're working on. I'm not prepared right now to go into any detail, but clearly it needs to be cleaned up. You know, the the university people uh, agree that they don't want to be policing people coming into hotels, just like up here in Jonesboro, a large hunting area. You know, People are deer hunting and duck hunting, and they're bringing their guns into the hotel overnight and the hotels will lose business just because they're on a campus. Same thing with restaurants. So the, the universities don't they, – they're looking for the revenue. They want the revenue. Uh, they agree it's confusing, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to work together to resolve this and clarify it as you've described.
1: Terrific. Well, Dan, as usual, uh, you said it in a far calmer uh, way than I did, uh, and that's, and we do need to resolve these problems. Let's talk about another topic that gets me hot and bothered. There are many of them indeed, and we talked with uh, attorney and professional engineer Chris Corbett about this just the other day here on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer, and that is the Municipal League. And let's be clear, the Municipal League is a quasi-private organization, but it's funded with public tax dollars. Talk to us about this and talk to us about your concern about what's going on relative to the Municipal League.
4: Well, sure, and it's not just the Municipal League, but there are several organizations like that that are uh you know, the Association of Arkansas Counties Municipal League and others that use and universities too, Robert that use taxpayer money for lobbying. Now, they, they disguise that by being a quasi governmental agency, uh, but they um, will write legislation to increase your taxes and then pay the lobbyist with um, the money they collect from your cities. Now, I guess you people know what the Municipal League is, but I think there are over 500 cities that pay this private group called the Municipal League. I think there are some 75 Arkansas counties that pay their uh, semi-private group called the Association of Arkansas Counties, they pay dues to those organizations. Those organizations then provide some valuable services in training your local officials. So they do some really good work and very valuable work. However, they also use part of that money that's collected to lobby. And what do they lobby for? They lobby to increase uh, spending, increase taxes, Matter of fact, I think the Municipal League was one of the ones behind uh, the, the Voting Act, where we were going to try to end these special elections, and the Municipal League was very opposed to that. So, and universities do the same thing. You know, they lobby for money for their university. It comes straight from the taxpayer. So, I'm working on a bill, and others are too, that would limit. Uh, matter of fact, it would end. The ability of these uh, organizations like the Municipal League, the Association of Arkansas Counties, higher, uh, higher ed, and also uh, K-12 um, Superintendents Association, who, again, use part of that money to lobby to get money uh, for their organization. Uh, I, th- I think you, you all talked about it quite a bit on how much money they're using, of uh, taxpayer money to fund these activities. And it's hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years that come straight from the taxpayer.
1: And that is the single most uh, upsetting and problematic aspect of this whole story is literally our taxpayer dollars go to these organizations. And then these organizations turn around and hire lobbyists to go to the legislature and to ask for more money for tax increases, and by the way, what else do they ask for? At the same time that they're asking for us to pay more to them through hired lobbyists paid by us, they ask for less oversight. They say, oh, well, you need to reduce the Freedom of Information Act as it applies uniquely to us, because we're special, you see. We we could never do anything wrong. God forbid. We, and we would never abuse the Freedom of Information Act. I heard that said by universities. They said, well, we don't need to be subject to this aspect of the Freedom of Information Act, because we always seek to comply with the Freedom Freedom of Information Act. And I can say two things. One, they don't always comply with the Freedom of Information Act. And two, they don't even always seek to comply with the Freedom of Information Act. We had a university attorney come to the state legislature. During the last legislative session and said, well, we need to change the Freedom of Information Act, you see, because of all these horrible things that have happened that we've had to comply with Freedom of Information Act requests. So the so the Democrat Gazette. Uh, sent them a Freedom of Information Act request and said, "Give us a list of that parade of horribles that you have now described when it's actually occurred." And he said, "Oh well, you see, you see, it didn't actually occur." So the guy who came to the to the legislature lied under oath to the legislature about this parade of horribles. It was a parade of hypotheticals. Oh, I'm so worried about that parade of hi- hypotheticals, uh, Senator. It's really. This is the crux of what is the swampiest of swampdom I've ever seen in my career. And this is what we need to clean it up. And your bill, your bills, and your desire to say, excuse me, you can't use taxpayer money to lobby the legislature. No, it doesn't work that way. You can't go and lobby for your own private interests, effectively for your own private pay raises, uh, by doing less work for more money. Uh, on taxpayers' backs. You want to come to the legislature as a citizen? Knock yourself out. Sign up. Anybody can do it.
4: Right. Yeah, and that's what the legislation does, because there is a a line there between what one does as a private citizen. Uh, But, again, we can't be just redirecting taxpayer money to go to these organizations who have a very uh, specific agenda lobbying against maybe what your local legislature wants to get past. Uh, you know, we're seeing the same thing with medical boards and uh, uh, the medical society. We're seeing the same thing in education, where the money is just being redirected, taxpayer money just redirected, uh, and it's not necessarily working in the best interest of the local taxpayer. So we've got to clean that up. We have several bills coming out uh, along these lines. Uh, Matter of fact, Robert, I look forward to talking to you about some of your taxpayer money that is going um, to certain parts of the state and not to other parts of the state. You know, we're looking at taxpayer money. Uh, Of course, I'm from northeast Arkansas, and we're looking at what uh, different agencies do, particularly the Department of Commerce, and how they collect our money and redirect it to other parts of the state, and we may not be getting our own money back. Uh, We may be financing other parts of the state. So I hope we can get uh, your listeners on board with their local legislators, follow the legislation that's coming up this session, and help us maximize uh, taxpayer funds so that they come back and really help the people, not helping these um, massive organizations that are out there.
1: Dan, it's such a wonderful point. Let me ask you, Dan, are you able to stay on uh, for the next segment, which will be aired this evening? Uh, I know you're very busy. So good. Okay. so we'll continue this conversation. And Heidi will uh, take us into the break um, in a moment. But you highlight such an important point. You say, look, local Jonesboro and everybody else, by the way, they pay tax dollars in. Excuse me. And then the politicians redistribute that money back to Jonesboro and other places. And sure enough, you're not getting back the same money that you put in. And, of course, it's not a complicated equation when you're realizing there are bureaucrats all along the way that are sucking some of that money out. You think the money makes all of this transition without anybody taking a piece of the action? That's not how government works. So when you hear about government, well, all we're doing is redistributing the money or moving it. around. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're taking a piece of it. It's an inherent inefficiency in which your taxpayer dollars and to me, more importantly, frankly, my taxpayer dollars go into the pockets of bureaucrats that do nothing but move the money around. Dan, my sister lives in the state of Massachusetts, and I pay more uh, as a percentage in state taxes than she does. How is that possible? Can you explain that? okay <laughs>
4: alright like We are of out pockets. of
2: time. Thank you, State Senator, for joining us. Uh we will be uh we will see you guys this evening in the 7 p.m. hour for the final hour of the Dave Elswick Show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave as Dave is taking some holiday time off. We will be back <laughs> tonight at 7 p.m. on the Dave Ellswick Show. Right now, here is Financial Issues Live. <laughs>
1: And I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Wednesday evening in the seven o'clock hour. If you were listening to us this morning, you heard Dan Sullivan, state senator from the Jonesboro area on the line. He is still on the line with us. Don't worry, folks, we haven't kept him on the line for the last 12 hours or so. This portion of the show, as you might know, is recorded. Dan, we were talking this morning about how. The funding goes on across the state that we're taxed. It all comes into a central coffer where the bureaucrats shift it around. And as you know, they got to get their taste. They got to get their VIG. They got to get their piece of the action. And then when it gets redistributed, we see less of our own money. And then we see, for example, what they give a million dollars up to that opera house in Northwest. I'm telling you, Dan, when there are people who need to eat or even perhaps not quite such critical issues, I suspect they still are more important to the average Arkansan than funding an opera house up there in Northwest. By the way, I've got no opposition to an opera house up there in Northwest or anybody or anywhere else. Pay for it. Here's a crazy idea. Pay for it. Maybe you should fund the local uh, movie theater before you should fund the opera house, because I'm more interested in going to a movie theater than I am to an opera house. In reality, of course, I don't think that the government should be funding either. These are private enterprises. They have to make it or break it on their own. Put aside, of course, some appropriate COVID relief because of this really, truly unique event. Uh, so, Dan, talk more about how the money is funneled around and how we see less of our own taxpayer dollars.
4: Well, the, you know, you're talking about the theater or the opera house, as you called it, uh, in northwest Arkansas. At the very same time that was going on here in Jonesboro, Arkansas, uh, we were facing a tax increase to uh, uh, refurbish our local uh, forum, our theater so here on the one hand, we're funding, we're having to face a tax increase to fund ours. And the other side, uh, in northwest Arkansas, they use about, I think it's 3 or $5 million of state tax money to do that. But how it works, uh, Robert, as most people probably know, is we send our dollars down to Little Rock. Little Rock then uh, takes all that in, processes it, and then if you want your own money back, you have to apply so it's unique when we, it's our money, but we'd have to apply in Little Rock to get our own money back. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, several programs that do that. One is a venture capital investment. I bet many people didn't even know that we as a state are funding venture capital programs. We have uh, startup funds for people that want to start up a business. Uh, you can apply to get startup funds for your new business. Uh, we have housing funds to build affordable housing uh, in um, you know different parts of the state, but all that money is collected by our Department of Commerce and then redistributed by with the sole authority of the director of the Department of Commerce. Uh, so again, you have to apply to get that. Now you take some, uh, I don't know how many. People in your uh, listening area, this would be applicable to. But we have many rural counties that continue to pay these taxes, continue to send their money to Little Rock. But when you look at where the money uh, goes when they redistribute it, they get very little back. You know, I recently uh, requested information from the Department of Commerce and asked to see a map showing where the money was redistributed and how it went by congressional district. Of course, our congressional districts are made up of an equal number of people. So you would assume that as this money is redistributed, uh, that it would be fairly well allocated equally back to each congressional district because it's proportional. And that's just not the case. So I just received that information about two weeks ago, uh, shared it with other legislators, and maybe as I get further along in this, uh, Robert, I'll come back on. Uh, but most of our money is not being equally distributed back to the people who are paying for it. Uh, some of these housing projects, you know, you they make a, um, a, a formula and you apply for the formula. Well, guess who gets to make the formula? The people that are appointed by the governor uh, to um, review the applications. And generally, they're from the area where the money is redistributed to. Surprise, surprise. Um, you know, and, you know, I think there are some good things, like in Northeast Arkansas, you know, we have uh, large steel companies up here along the river, and they uh, get a, a good portion of that money. However, they're in one county, Mississippi County, up here in Arkansas, up here in Northeast Arkansas. That And the first district, first congressional district, stretches the entire length of the state of Arkansas uh, east on the eastern side. So when you uh, say, well, District 1 got a million dollars, well, that only helped a very small portion of our county. It doesn't help most of our counties. So I think we need to take a look at, at how we're distributing this money. And again, I've got a bill coming up that will require uh, this money to be more distributed in a more equitable manner according to counties and congressional districts so you tell me how i did explaining that Do you think your listeners picked up on, on what was happening
1: oh i think absolutely but i want to focus even more so on this question right so you say well we want to get some of our money back or more of our money back because it's our money after all why not not take it in the first place? Why not have less of our money taken out of our back pockets and being put back in our front pockets at a reduced amount? So that's question one. And then relatedly, how much is it reduced? How much is a swamp doing its swampiness and taking out of it before it comes back to us?
4: Well, you know, excellent points. And one, um, you know, other states like Texas uh, lets more... Local revenue stay local. Uh, I've looked at them as a model where a lot of this distribution and redistribution takes place at the city and county level. So rather than send our money to Little Rock and create jobs and and uh, calculate the revenue and redistribute it there, they let the money stay local in the counties because people have uh, you're more aware of what's happening in your local county. You're more likely to go to a city council meeting or a justice of the peace meeting where this money is being, um, accepted and redistributed. And you can do that locally as well. So I think that's a good idea. I'm always uh, very cautious when they take my dollar and I send it somewhere where I don't have much say, and I have to uh, do an FOI, a FOIA request to find out where my money's going. But there are some uh, good projects too. You know, many of the counties uh, in other states accept more responsibility for their local roads and highways rather than the state government doing that. Well, I'm in favor of that. I'd much rather keep my money local and let us locally determine what roads need to be fixed and what infrastructure needs we have rather than sending that down to the state and letting people down there who are appointed, by the way, they're not elected. These are many appointed officials on these highway commissions and different commissions. They're appointed people, uh, appointed by the governor. Uh, I'd much rather see that happen locally with my elected officials than see appointed officials doing that. But some of these dollars are really uh, necessary. Again, it's just having that local control. So when we have this conversation, we need to be bringing up that local control matter in it. The other thing, you know, everyone ought to be able to have see what your return on investment is, the ROI. So if we are collecting, you know, let's say a million dollars to go to a venture capital program, we ought to be able to say, well, we invested, um, you know, a million dollars in this. And since it's an investment, then we ought to be getting back 1.2 or 3 million over the course of time. And if that's what's going on, then, then you look at that from a different perspective. But, folks, unfortunately, many of these things don't have a return on investment. They say, well, it's calculated differently. It's about creating jobs. We go, okay, well, how many jobs did you create? Well, we really don't know. Um, so those are the kinds of things that really give me pause and cause me to look in-depth. When you can't tell me, you can't call in it an investment if you can't tell me what your investment brings back in revenue. And unfortunately, we don't know. And again, if that happened on a local level, you know, I go to church with the guys, and I, my kids go to school with the people locally. I see them at the coffee shops, and I question them, and they question me about what's going on. But when that happens at Little Rock, you know, we don't have that kind of contact with them. So I, I think there's a uh, just a lot of bureaucratic waste here that we really need to uh, take a deep dive on. Unfortunately, uh, the taxpayers get lost in the weeds. It gets so complex and deep down that the average listener to your radio station doesn't have the time or energy to dig into that. But we really need them to pay attention and call on their legislators to take some serious looks at this.
1: Well, that last point is such a critical point, Dan, because that's exactly right from sort of a broad what we call economic, and I don't mean money, I mean sort of broad, rational evaluation, that is, as a taxpayer, it takes a lot of work for me to try to figure out where all my money's going, and if I make a fuss about it, maybe I can save a nickel or a dime. Collectively, it's millions upon millions of dollars, and so right. there's really not much of an incentive for, for me to go out there, because I've got more important things going on in my life. I've got to go to work, I've got to take care of my kids, I've got to do a lot of things, and so so that's why we hire a bunch of experts. Those experts are called representatives. And by right. that, I mean, of course, literally the representatives and the senators as well, which is a representative. And those representatives, if they want to do their jobs well, they look out for our best interests. And I know that you have done that as a state rep, and now you will continue to do so as a state senator. But that's the inherent challenge is that there are there remain A lot of elected officials who go along to get along. They don't see any point in making noise because all they are concerned with is their title and not doing good for the people. And now, I like to believe that that's in the minority. I don't mean that politically. I mean that that there are fewer people like that than there are the opposite. And I suspect that's true. And I hope to believe, as someone who's committed to conservative ideals, that we see more of that amongst the Democrats. Democrats than the Republicans, but I can't make you that promise. I don't know that that's the case. Listen, Dan, I don't need to name names, but you ran against a Republican, and I did not have a lot of faith in that Republican, and there are plenty of other Republicans in whom I do not have a lot of faith, who are not concerned about the interests of the people, because if they were, we would have had different outcomes already, and this is an ongoing problem that we will continue to highlight here on the Dave Ellswick Show and elsewhere, no doubt, with your help. And this is why it's just... So this is always the problem with government. This is why conservatives say we need limited government. And you hear the liberals say, why are you guys so afraid of government? Here's why I'm, quote, afraid, end quote, of government. And I put it in quotes because I'm not afraid. It's concerned. Here's why I'm concerned about government. It is the most powerful institution in the world because unlike, say, a Walmart, which is big and has a lot of money, they can't throw you in jail. Government can. So they got as much money as... Uh, A private entity does, but they can throw you in jail. And, oh, by the way, they get to take your money whether or not you ask them to. You go to Walmart, you don't crack open that wallet unless you want to. But you go into the government, and guess what? They've got their fingers in your pockets every day, and you can't say a darn word about it. And so we need to remain vigilant about this and we need to work hard to ensure that government doesn't grow, that it shrinks, that it provides the core functions that we do want of government, but it doesn't overreach. And when we see a million dollars going to an opera house, guess what? Government's too big. Government All right, has Robert, too much let's money.
2: continue this conversation into the next segment. We have to take a break. You are listening to The Dave Elswick Show in the evening in the 7 p.m. hour. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Elswick as Dave Ellswick is taking some time off for his holiday break. We will be right back on The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer.
1: This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave at this 7 o'clock hour here on Wednesday. We have on the line with us Senator Dan Sullivan. Dan, I was talking before the break about the dangers of government that is too large, and it gives rise to the apt question, I suspect, I hope, uh, what's going on with the lawsuit? Now, remind Dave's audience what is meant by, quote, the lawsuit, uh, because there are plenty of them these days. But you and Dave and many others have a very important one. So tell us what it is and then where we're at.
4: Sure. And thank you for that. There are about 18 of us who signed on to a lawsuit, including, I think, 12 to 15 legislators uh, that that sought to stop the governor's overreach. There is a balance of power, supposed to be, where one branch, the legislature, makes the laws, and the other branch, the executive branch, enforces the law. So when the governor did his emergency order back nine or ten months ago, he rightfully um, uh, cited that emergency need and his authority, rightful authority, for 60 days to have emergency power. Uh, This was at the outset of the covid pandemic and then he extended that for 30 days and then he extended it again and again and he continued to extend it which we don't think the constitution allows uh and hence there was a lawsuit by 18 of us only saying that the governor needs to work with the legislature that's essentially all the lawsuit says uh and matter of fact it says he doesn't need to it says he has to that's what the Constitution allows. So hence the lawsuit. Uh, since then, you know, the governor had expressed, I think about a month ago, uh, a desire to work with the legislature on his terms, where he says, you know, the legislature, you guys come together and just bless what I'm doing. And the legislature, both the Senate and the House, said, well, well we're not going to do that. If you want to work with the legislature, we've always been available since day one. We've been willing to work with you, but there is a process for that, and we, it's called their constitutional process, and we think that's what needs to follow. Again, the lawsuit is about uh, having one branch of government, the executive branch, who has taken over the authority to make law and enforcing law. And I think we filed our brief with the Supreme Court yesterday, if not yesterday, today. Um, And then the um, Attorney General will have 30 days to reply to that, and then we'll have a a Supreme Court hearing over this. But let me give you an example of what it means to make law and enforce law. You know, right now, the, um, the ABC Alcoholic Beverage Commission and the Department of Health send inspectors around to our cities. And they go in your small businesses. They go in not only your restaurants, but they go in the parts store uh, for your auto parts. They go in your, your little small uh, businesses that are around town to make sure they're in compliance with the law. And uh, we've seen some of these uh, um, citations, and the citations are failure to be a good neighbor. Now, process that for a minute. <laughs> You're getting a citation from uh, the state that you're failing to be a good neighbor by not complying with one of the mandates that are out there uh, that the governor has that are with no portion of legislative input. This is strictly executive branch saying we're making new laws, we're going to enforce new laws, and your local legislators have nothing to say about that. Now, what, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that they're not enforcing those good neighbor policies or however you want to describe them. They're not enforcing those equitably among the big box stores and your small stores. You know, when this first started out, you saw the big box stores had stickers on the sidewalks and they – checked how many people went into the store and they, you know, they, they had mask police out there and they had all kinds of things they were doing. As a matter of fact, you saw a one-way lined up an aisle, but you don't see that anymore. So the, one of the problems is the fact that there's are not being uh, the executive branch is not equally enforcing all the mandates with small business and large businesses. And we are just seeing a rush of our small businesses in our communities closing or about to close with no end in sight. Uh, you know, the, the vaccine is being distributed and we're thankful for that. If people want to take it, that will be available at some point. Um, but this is having a, a tremendous impact on small business and not being enforced in an equitable manner.
1: Well, Dan, surprise, surprise. What I'm hearing you say is that those business entities but fill in the blank. Those entities that have a lot of money and therefore, as a direct result, have political influence because they donate to elected officials are getting different outcomes to their benefit rather than the little guy who runs the mom and pop shop. And yeah. this is right, and this is goes back to the theme that I started before the break, which is when you put a lot of power in government, guess what? You've got winners and losers based on government preferences, not based on individual preferences. And it's cronyism and corruption at its best. And, of course, by best, I mean worst. Hey,
4: and Robert, we had a we, good example of this. And yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Let's
2: talk about that example uh, as soon as we come back from this break. Uh, Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave as Dave Ellswick is on his holiday break. We will be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show, one hundred one point one FM, The Answer.
1: This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbach filling in for Dave on this Wednesday evening. We continue our conversation with State Senator Dan Sullivan. Dan, uh, we were talking just before the break about uh, cronyism, corruption, when government gets too large, it gets dangerous, the notion that when, that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And with all that in mind, you were about to give us uh, a very good example and Heidi gave a great teaser by putting the break in exactly then. So now that we're back from break, what's this example that you have for us? And I know there are many, but I'm sure you have a great one.
4: Yeah, and you know, just to to set out a a standard here. Some of the people are well-intentioned, so it's not always corruption, not necessarily corruption. There's just a difference of opinion, which is the focus of what our nation's about is a difference of opinion, dialogue, discussion, and compromise. So it's not always, and especially in this pandemic, it's not always about corruption. Sometimes there's just a genuine difference of opinion. And we had the uh, deputy director of the Department of Health before our committee last week and I asked her, and I have the video of it, and I'll be releasing the video very soon, uh, asked her in, in some states, like in, I think it's in Florida, uh, or no, in Texas, you can apply as a business. You can apply with a plan, uh, and if you comply with all the regulations, you can have be less restricted than others. You know, the governor has told our restaurants, for example, uh, that serve alcohol and bars that they have to close at 11 o'clock. Well, I said, well, how do you how do you uh, compare a restaurant with whose 80 percent of their revenue is on food with a bar who has 80 percent of their revenue on alcohol? Why do they face the very same restrictions? How come they can't uh, apply uh, just like citizens do? You know, the governor said now if you're going to meet in a group of 10 or more, you have to apply to meet. You have to get his permission to meet. Uh, why can't businesses do that? Why can't businesses apply and say, well, look, we're a restaurant. We make 80% of our revenue on food. Why can't we be open till midnight or 1 or 2 a.m.? And a bar, maybe they have special things that they have done. Some of them have put in special air filtering systems. Some have a regular hand washing and, and other protocols that they put in place to protect their customers. Why can't we apply? When I asked the director of the the deputy director of the Department of Health, why they don't do that, there was a period of silence there. I don't know if they'd ever considered that. And when I asked if she would consider that, uh, she said, well, we'll take that under consideration or something like that. And, Robert, that's the the part that's very disturbing, you know, that we as legislators and representatives of the people can't go to the Department of Health and have any power uh, as the – Uh, As a legislative branch who makes the rules and makes the laws, how come we can't say uh, there are other considerations? You can't treat everybody the same. As a matter of fact, if you look at the trend lines for states that are uh, open, like Florida, and states that are closed, like uh, California or New York, when you look at the trend lines of the pandemic, they're all very similar. Uh, They have spikes and they reduce But the fact that one is more open than the other, we just don't see much uh, change or difference in the trend lines for how bad uh, COVID is. And it is serious right now. There are a lot of people. There are record numbers. But it doesn't seem like, uh, again, when you look at those trend lines, as on the CDC website, the trend lines don't differ very much. And why can't we have those discussions, those open discussions? in a committee where the people uh, can watch and we can record it and distribute it. It's very discouraging, uh, and that's one of the things I think you'll see come up in this legislative session, is you're going to see legislators uh, step up and say, we want to do our job. We want to represent the people in our district. But that's the example is the Department of Health uh, not being willing to differentiate between bars that make a lot of money off of alcohol and restaurants who don't make much. They're all treated the same. Uh, But that's what happens when you have a bureaucratic approach versus a representative approach where we get to come in and represent our restaurants
1: well, and i 'll take it even further uh, and you know you say that uh, it's not all uh, cronyism and, and corruption, and I one hundred percent agree with you uh, I suspect, however, that we may disagree on where that line is drawn I might be seeing more i might be perceiving more cronyism and corruption than you do, and ultimately that's subject to interpretation. Uh, But here's an example that I was told about recently. Apparently, I think it's the Department of Health has some offices on the property at UAMS. But these people are not people that are doctors or nurses or healthcare professionals. They're bureaucrats, but they have their offices on the UAMS property because I gather they interact with UAMS folks as the largest healthcare provider in the state. And guess what? UAMS included them amongst those that have already gotten vaccines uh, for COVID. Because, well, you know, they're part of our community. Uh, nope. Nope. And now I continue, and by the way, everybody else, but I'm talking about me and everybody else waiting in line to get my vaccine because some bureaucrat got his vaccine first. And we see this all around the country uh, that where bureaucrats uh, and elected officials say, well, you I'm so important. Don't you understand, Dan? I'm an elected official. So I tell you how to live your life. And I tell you what uh, Opera House can get another million dollars. So it's critical that I don't get, ill, so I'm first in line. And some unelected bureaucrat at the Department of Health is getting his vaccine, and I and other people are waiting in line to get our vaccines. What do you have to say about that? And what can the legislature do to start making this right? Well, yeah, and great point. And you know, your point of
4: we disagree on some things. Absolutely. That's the foundational principle of a representative. Form of government like we have, a representative democracy, representative republic, however you want to frame it. It's about open, transparent dialogue, discussion, and letting the people uh, hear what's really going on because they don't. It's one of the real values of Dave's show, and, you know, when you host it, is sharing these stories that don't make the paper, uh, a perspective that doesn't make the newspaper. Uh, it's just open communication. So, you know, I'm looking forward to this legislation, legislative session because that's what we're going to try to bring, some transparency, some openness, and I hope your listeners will stay tuned uh, during the session. Um, you know, follow social media that follows these things. Uh, you know, I'm really concerned about people coming to the legislature, uh, watching our committee meetings. You know, used to uh, those committee meetings would be full, and people would be videoing right there in the committee. And when we took a voice vote, there was an opportunity to see uh, who voted how because you're reading their lips, you're seeing how that's happening. But now with limited seating. Uh, In committee rooms, I'm really concerned about transparency. I'm concerned about what the people will get to know and what they'll hear as reported by a few select people. Um, So, again, radio programs like this are just invaluable in sharing accurate information what goes on during this legislative session.
1: Dan, what are you all doing in that regard about possibly having uh, video teleconferencing in committee meetings so people can testify, observe, and testify from afar? Are you all doing anything on that?
4: Well, they're making some, uh, setting up some protocols. I think they're finalizing those now. But yes, there'll be limited seating in the committee room. They'll have, uh, you know, of course, you've been there. they're Crowds mm-hmm. crowds outside the doors, uh, standing around talking, waiting to come in. So there'll be a whole um, very complex um, process in place to keep everybody safe, which is important, but also to be transparent about uh, what we're doing and allowing for testimony. I know you've been a, a person coming in to testify at many of these committee meetings, and I hope you'll be there for me a few times but, yeah, we're going to have to have uh, remote testimony available as well as uh, remote viewing for people like your listeners who want to follow what's
1: going on. Yeah, I think it's really critical. I really do. I think this is something that the legislature needs to make sure happens for there to be transparency and to be uh, democracy, as we understand it, meaning input from the people. And we have aptly been concerned when we have runaway bureaucrats making the rules and enforcing the rules and unevenly enforcing the rules against small business relative to large business. And we need to make sure that we don't have a similar pattern of behavior in the legislature in terms of access, in terms of viewing and in terms of the ability to testify. And so we need to set up a system that ensures that legislators get to hear the voices of the public, and the public gets to hear the voices of the legislators. It needs to be reciprocal. We need to ensure that our process works even during these difficult times, and maybe if we have a little bit less of the cronyism and corruption that we're seeing taking place regarding the distribution of the vaccine, we can get more people who are deserving of being vaccinated uh, get vaccinated so that they can come in person as well. Hey, can I make a claim, and I'm being facetious here, Dan, but can I make a claim, hey, I'm just as important as these unelected bureaucrats because I wanna come testify before the legislature. Senator Dan Sullivan pointed out that I've done it before. I intend to do it again, Put me ahead of line. Put me ahead of line. But that's what's well, you going what on. Is,
4: and this has happened again in the pandemic. You, you've heard the term an essential business, and we're going mm-hmm. to allow essential businesses to stay open. And who decides that? Not the legislature. The executive branch has the sole authority to determine who is essential. Uh, so you have now, of course, if I own a business, it's essential to me. You know, my family is essential to me. Our Constitution says you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit would be your job. That would be your opportunity uh, and your constitutional, God-given right to pursue a job that you can feed your family, keep your business open. And now we have an executive branch who's decided they'll be the determiner of who's essential. They'll, be de- they'll determine who's essential for a business. They'll determine who's essential for a vaccine. All of those are being determined and made by one branch of government. And Robert, I think your people know that's not in what the heart of our foundational principles of our government are. It has never been. And I'm so proud of our Kansans for our Kansans standing up strong and saying, yes, this is serious. Yes, the pandemic is serious. Yes, it's a hurtful thing for businesses and families. And yes, people are losing their lives and losing their businesses. But we can't, uh, we can't end or can't uh, supplant our representative form of government by an authoritarian form of government, which is exactly what we've done. And it's time for the executive branch and the governor to get back and work with the legislature. You know, the, the solution is very simple. There's a rulemaking process where the Department of Health comes before the uh, legislative committee, the legislative council, and they bring their rules before the council. And the council then discusses those. The same could be done with the distribution of vaccine. Instead, the governor has appointed committees. The key word, they're being appointed. Uh, and we know that most of- committees that are appointed or have a predetermined outcome there's not open transparency there's not uh discussion uh open discussion there's not disagreement uh among that that is transparent there may be some disagreement but that is done in a in a private room it's not open for discussion and transparency and the people of our state want to see that They want to see why those decisions are made. Why does Robert or any other uh, citizen, uh, why are you not essential to the vaccine? Why is your business not essential? Those are all huge questions that need answered.
2: All right, y'all. Let's uh let's take a break. Uh final segment is coming up for the 7 PM hour of the Dave Elswick Show. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave as Dave is taking on uh some much needed holiday time. We are also joined by State Senator Dan Sullivan. We will be right back on the Dave Elswick Show, 101.1 FM, the answer.
1: This is the Dave Ellswick Show. We are here with you Wednesday evening at the 7 o'clock hour. We have, continuing through to the end of the show, State Senator Dan Sullivan with us. We're going to be on for another, oh, seven minutes or so. Dan, let me thank you in advance, because when that music creeps up, it creeps up quickly. Thank you for joining us for this extended interview. It's been wonderful, and we're going to do it again. I like these long-form interviews. and we have been talking about the dangers of having one branch of government dictating to us all. Of course, we used to have the word, a word for that, right? That was a dictatorship. But why is it difficult, I ask you somewhat rhetorically, for, say, the Department of Health to come before that legislative committee that you mentioned, I think it was the Legislative Council, to say, hey, Legislative Council, who represents all of the people of Arkansas, can, you know, what do you think of these proposals? Can we work collaboratively to come up with these ideas? What's so difficult about that?
4: Well, originally, and I think the governor was correct, originally the governor said he didn't have time to consult with the legislature. And I think in any emergency, that's true. But guess what? The Constitution provides for that. And our laws provide for the governor to act uh, in an emergency with a lot of authority, quite a bit of authority, and it allows him to extend that. So originally the governor said he didn't have time, which was probably accurate. But then we brought up and said, well, Governor, actually, the, the law provides for that. You, all you have to do is call us up and uh, we'll come in. A small group comes into session, meets and decides, and we move forward with your emergency orders. So provided for that. So when the governor backed off of saying uh, it was an emergency, then he said he only trusts his people, which was uh, Dr. Smith, I think, originally was the head of the Department of Health and now Dr. Romero. So the governor says that he only trusts his people. You know, that's really uh, discouraging as a legislator to hear that there'll no longer be a discussion because we're not trusted. And those were very—the governor didn't say it that way. He said—he didn't say he didn't trust us. He just said he only trusts his people. Well, his people turned into commissions that he appoints, committees that he appoints. Uh, people like you you mentioned uh, stationed at UAMS that, that are appointed by the, the executive branch. And now it's been, what, going on 10 or 11 months? We're coming up on a year with this, and it's still we can't be, the people can't be trusted to have input or to be heard. Um, and that's just not what our government is about. Again, it's about dialogue, discussion, and compromise and working together and there are all kinds of experts out there. You know, Dr. Romero is not the only expert with all the information, uh, and I think there's an appropriate time for his decisions to be discussed, just like I mentioned earlier. You know, why why are, are some states allowing applications for businesses where they can apply for um, uh, to be open past 11 if we answer certain protocols? I think there was a a uh, uh, gym or something recently, the Supreme Court ruled, uh, their state Supreme Court ruled they could be open at 100% if they complied with all the safety regulations. Well, that's a unique idea. They're in compliance. Why can the government restrict them? But here in Arkansas, we're not even allowed to have that discussion. Uh, and it's just not the way we operate. It's not in the heart of the people. That's why we say our rights are given to us by God, not by the government, uh, which is unique in human history, that people have rights that are given to them by God, not by a government. And unfortunately, we've lapsed into that, that now governments are uh, the, the grantor of all of our rights. And it's not a good uh, path to be on. It's not a good thing. And I don't think Arkansans will stand for it. And I think if we don't have some changes coming up in this legislative session, uh, you're going to hear from more from the people of the state of Arkansas.
1: Well, I think, uh, I, first of all, I agree exactly with what you're saying. We need to have the most democratic branch of government involved and actually Doing government, and that's the legislature. But I think the legislature, if they're being shut out by the executive, uh, the legislature needs to start having some hearings. It needs to ha- start having some hearings quickly and calling people in f- uh, from the executive branch. And if they don't want to show up, issue subpoenas issue subpoenas. It's time for the audit committee to start doing serious audits of finding out where money's going and in this case, where vaccines are going. It's time for the legislature to step up to the plate and exercise the authority that it's given by the Constitution and more broadly by the people because the people are the, the authority that imbues any governmental entity. And the legislature needs to be vigilant and strong And not say, well, it's not it's not fair what's going on, but there's nothing we can do. And I know, by the way, you're not among them being among those, oh, 15 or so legislators who are going to the judiciary to get some resolution as well. So you are strong on this issue. Thank goodness. But we need leadership in the legislature to step up and say we are going to be heard from and we are going to hear from the executive branch, and I want to see hearings, and I want to see lots of them. Do you think that's a possibility?
4: Well, you know, we have been. We've had the the, uh, health department before the legislature a number of times, but there's not much media coverage of it. You know, the... the, it's hard to get the word out there, just like I mentioned the asking the Department of health uh the question about uh allowing applications. You didn't see that in any media out there it's been on facebook a little bit it's been on some other social media but it's hard to get the word out there uh to the masses and that's why again why i'm thankful for radio shows like this that are getting the word out there that we are having hearings we are asking why close at 11 why does one size fit all And citizens need to be asking the executive branch that question. And citizens need to be calling uh, their local legislators and asking them to take action on these things. All right, y'all, we are out
2: of time. Thank you, State Senator, for coming on. Thank you, Robert. We will talk to you tomorrow morning. This is The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM. The answer. Have a great evening.
1: I'm so